I'd invite you to turn with me in God's Word to Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, as we continue what we started last week, looking at some of uh, the parables in Luke that are not found in some of the other uh, Gospels, and looking at what I think is kind of the heart of, of Jesus' teaching, particularly about what His mission was. We talked about it a little bit last week, and in uh, Luke 15, verses 1 through 10, we noted that Luke 15 is really a, a, a group of three different parables of lostness, and they're all connected together. They all have a, a similar flow to them, similar things that are going on in them. And we looked at the first two last week, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. We saw this increasing value, one of 100 sheep, one of 10 coins, and then the parable we're going to look at today now moves to one of two sons. And so there's an increasing value there. But we said that last week that, in a sense, this is Jesus' mission. This is to the heart of Jesus' mission. Back in Ezekiel 34, the Lord called out the, sheep of, the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and said, you're not doing your job. You're fleecing the flock instead of taking care of them. And because you're not doing your job, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose your jobs, and I'm going to send a new shepherd, David. And of course, David was long dead, but David became a code word in a sense for the coming Messiah. I'm going to send David. I'm going to send my Messiah. And what's his job description? He will come to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. And then he will shepherd them with justice and righteousness. To seek and to save the lost became Jesus' job description. In fact, at times in his ministry, he would look at the people of Israel and with such compassion, and he had compassion for them, we're told, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And then at one point in Jesus' ministry, as he as he makes plans to go visit and have a meal with a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus, and all of the, the religious leaders around him are muttering about this, as we saw last week with these parables, Jesus says, yeah, but you don't understand my mission. I have come to seek and to save the lost. Basically, referring right back to Ezekiel 34. So Jesus knew what his job description was. Jesus knew what his mission was, to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. And so these parables are about Jesus' mission, first and foremost. However, as we mentioned before, they're also, they also tell us something about the value of a sinner in Jesus' eyes. We see this increasing value, one of a hundred sheep, one of ten coins, one of two sons. And that implies that there's value there, that they would drop everything, like uh, leave the 99 behind and go search out the one sheep. There's value there. And Jesus is saying, yes, I've come to the lost and found table uh, of Israel, and I'm searching for the lost because there's value there. They belong to me. And then we also noted that our role as lost sheep is simply being found, simply being found and brought back by Jesus. And then, once we're found, then our job is to rejoice, to rejoice over other sinners that are brought back, other sheep that are brought back by Jesus as well. 
And all of these elements are in the first two parables, and we see the same elements, although they're extended uh, quite a bit in this third parable. So now we turn to the third parable, Luke 15, verses 11 through 32, and we're going to spend three weeks looking at this one, but let's look at the parable in its entirety. Luke 15, beginning at verse 11, where it says, Jesus continued, so there's this connecting point with the previous two. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants." So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But, But the father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and you never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And once again, we hear that phrase from Jesus' ministry. He was lost and now is found. Let's open with a word of prayer before we look at this passage. Holy Spirit, as we prayed in song, we now lift before you once again the request to help us understand and take to heart this passage. We know that you inspired these words to be recorded and and shared by Luke. But we also understand that you continue to inspire the word to each one of us in a way that no, no preacher can do. You speak to each of our hearts with what each one of us needs to know and to take home from your word. So do that this morning and help us to have open hearts 
and then willing hands and feet to live accordingly. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen with me a moment to a modern parable. The 16-year-old young man slowly opens the gun cabinet and takes out his father's favorite deer hunting rifle. His older brother looks on in the distance, unseen. Quietly, the young man makes his way toward the garden where his father enjoyed his leisure time planting and weeding. He's going to kill him, the older brother realizes. But instead of saying or doing anything, he goes to his room, waiting for the ominous sound of a bullet being fired. After the expected sound, he hears a scream from the kitchen where his mother was fixing supper and the back door slamming shut. He finds her out in the backyard, weeping over the bleeding figure of his father, lying face down in the rich garden soil, shot in the back. The coward, thinks the older brother, in the back of all places. The ambulance arrives in time to save the father's life, though it's many days in intensive care before they can be sure. Meanwhile, the young son, object of a statewide manhunt, has vanished. The father recovers enough to find his way into a wheelchair from which he would never rise again. The shot has paralyzed him from the waist down. Never again would he nail another shingle or raise another wall. His construction business will have to be given over to his son. The older one, that is. The younger one is presently being extradited from the neighboring state. He'd given himself up, tired of running and hoping for leniency in the courtroom. But the town is in an uproar. Newspaper editorials calling for the maximum penalty. Insurance money is the reason he gives. He had his eye on a red Corvette and the redhead down the street and figured that the money could get him both. As the court day approaches, the younger son, who's watched law and order with a passion, has it all figured out. He'll plea bargain down to a lesser charge, getting himself tried as a juvenile. A couple years in juvie detention beats 20 to 30 years of hard time. Then he'll work in his father's construction business for minimum wage, the wages saved being applied to his father's hospital bills. As he spells this all out to the judge and two lawyers, the door to, doors to the judge's chambers swing open. In wheels his father, who hugs the boy tearfully, and despite the protests of his lawyer, asks that all charges be dropped. The son dissolves into tears. Don't, Dad, I'm not worthy. The judge also tries to dissuade him, but has no legal choice but to do as requested. Case closed. Outside, the father hands him the keys to his newly purchased van equipped for his wheelchair. Keep them, he says. It's an extra set. As a young man fumbles to start the van, he runs his fingers over many recognizable keys on the chain. The key for the house. Dad's construction office, the safe deposit box at the bank, and the key for the gun cabinet. 
He can hardly see through his tear-filled eyes as he pulls into the driveway. A catering truck is there and cars line the street in both directions for as far as the eye can see. A large sign across the front of the house shouts, Welcome home! Family and friends fill the living room, dining room, and backyard. As he walks in, they grit their teeth and say, only half meaning it, welcome back. As the caterer is serving the hors d'oeuvres, the older brother walks in. He spies his younger brother and bellows, what's going on? The answer is obvious. So he rushes over to his father, roughly jerks his wheelchair around to face him, and gives him a tongue lashing that causes the guest to turn away in embarrassment. I never tried to kill you, yet you never gave me party privileges. When his tirade is over, the only noise audible is the perking of the coffee pot. Finally, the father breaks the silence with gentle but firm words. Your brother... My son was going to be sent up for hard time in the state penitentiary, but now he's back with us. That calls for celebration. Why would a son do such a thing? This had to be about more than money. And how could he expect to plea bargain over such a serious matter? They should lock him up and throw away the key. Certainly such a person with homicidal tendencies would not be allowed back into the house. I want to suggest to you that those were the same questions and exclamations the Pharisees were voicing in their minds when Jesus told his story. This parable, which we call the prodigal son, although it probably has more appropriate names, we'll get to those in the future. This parable is so packed with questions and theological truth that we're going to take three Sundays to unravel it, looking at each of the main characters in the story. This is the story of Jesus' ministry. It is the story of Jesus' ministry. And so we'll take turns looking at each of the three main characters. This morning, we look at the younger son. Now, after listening to that modern parable that I wrote, we asked, why would a son do such a thing? It had to be about more than the money. And the same is true with Jesus' parable. These Middle Eastern Jewish listeners would have been shocked The son makes two requests. First, he asks for his share in the family farm. You need to know that this never happened in the Middle East. This never happened. It's possible that a father in bad health might decide to divide the property among his sons ahead of time, but a son would never ask. And secondly, he also asked to be allowed to liquidate his share of the land, to be able to sell part of the family farm for cash. This is even more unheard of. Because even if the father had divided the land, the son never took complete possession of it until his father's death. In fact, the father still owned all the profits. He owned the fruit and the crops of the land, and that served as his pension, his livelihood, 
So for the young son to possess and liquidate part of the family land was like stealing his father's social security check. But it's even worse than that. Kenneth Bailey, who taught in the Middle East for well over 30 years, spent about the first 15 of those years going around the Middle East, and this was not just Israel, but this was other Middle Eastern countries as well, and he was asking about Jesus' parables and how they were heard in that culture. He would go around to villages, and when the conversation got to this parable, it would go something like this. Has anyone ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. Well, if anyone did, what would happen? The father would beat him, of course. Why? Because this request means he wants his father to die. The Middle Eastern culture, in the Middle Eastern culture, this was a death wish. To ask for your inheritance was to say, Dad, I wish you were dead. To want to liquidate the land is to say, I can't even wait for you to die. Obviously, this is about much more than money. It's about a broken relationship with the Father. And it also will soon become about a broken relationship with the rest of the community. Because the community would already be starting to plan to cut this young son off. There were two reasons a community could cut off a person. He married a Gentile or impure woman, or he lost the family property or wealth to the Gentiles. And the second is true in this case. We're told that this young man went off to a far country. Any of the Jews in that day would know that that's Gentile territory. It's confirmed later when he ends up in a pig pen working a place that you'd never find in Israel. The community would perform what they called a kizaza ceremony, breaking a clay jar as a symbol of the broken relationship between the community and the individual, and the individual could never step foot in that community again. Last week we talked about how Jesus' definition of sinner differed from some of the more uh, legalistic Pharisees. That a sinner is not just a lawbreaker, but also law keepers are sinners too. That any sin is a breaking of a relationship with God the Father, but also in a sense a breaking of relationship with His community, the body of Christ. Well, here's Jesus' picture in a parable of that. In our fallen, sinful nature, Jesus says, we hate God, and we have a death wish toward Him. Jonathan Edwards once wrote, if God were ever to make His life vulnerable to human hands, the deity would not be safe for five minutes. Don't believe it? Look at the cross of Jesus. And so, Jesus often uses parables to draw people in, to get them to identify with a character. This younger son is us. 
This younger son is us. Now, in the modern parable, I told the son thought he could plea bargain his way and somehow make up for his actions, and it, it was absurd. But Jesus tells us in this story, we try to do the same thing with God. The younger son came to a low point. He had no money. His only job was in a pig pen, which went against his religion and his upbringing. He is starving. He had hit rock bottom. And then he reflects and realizes what he's done. Sold part of the family farm, broke the community laws, failed to provide for his father in his old age. So he asks, how can I make it up to him? How how can I make it up? And so he struck on what he thought was a good idea. He would apologize and take on the role of a hired servant instead of a son. Notice, he's willing to give up the family relationship, but not his freedom. He doesn't want to come on as a slave. And he will earn his way back. Pay off his debt. It's absurd, of course. The deed was done. Nothing could make up for it. But in a sense, that was the system of repentance that was right in the minds of some of the Pharisees listening to the story. They might be saying, you know, hey, finally he's doing the right thing. Repenting and making reparations. So the young son comes to the edge of the village, his speech firmly in mind. He fully expects the community to harass him, maybe even try to cut him off, but he's going to at least try. And then he sees his father in a distant, at the distance running in a humiliating manner through the business district on Main Street. We'll talk about that more next week. And his father accepts him before he can even get his speech out. And then it dawns on him. The real sin is a broken relationship with the Father. And only the Father can restore him. Nothing the Son does, no reparations he makes, no no concessions he makes. Only the Father can restore him. And as the Father hugs him, we see an act of amazing grace. And now real repentance comes. He drops talks of reparations. He drops talks about being a hired servant. He admits his real sin, his unworthiness, and he simply accepts being accepted. And that, according to Jesus, is real repentance. To accept being accepted is the gospel. Last week we talked about how Jesus, in essence, indicates that repentance is simply being being found. It's nothing that we do on our own. It's simply being found. Well, another aspect of that is to accept being found. To accept being accepted is the gospel. Hard times make us repentant, and, and sometimes God uses them for that. But how often don't we try to make it up to God? Oh, I'll pray more, I'll read more, I'll give more, I'll do more. When the real sin is the bro- a broken relationship with the Father. And only He can restore us. 
All we can do is accept His amazing grace, which comes through the cross of Jesus Christ, which again we'll talk about more next week. But back to that question, why would anyone with a death wish be allowed home? Praise God we are. The younger son is given the signet ring that shows his authority over the estate. It was the key, if you will, to everything in the estate. And he's given the best robe, which would have been the father's robe. The community, ready to tear his head off, would have to respect him because he was wearing the father's robe. And then the father invites the community, anticipating a kizaza ceremony to cut off the son, to a banquet to honor the son instead. They would be obligated to attend and be reconciled to the son as well for the father's sake. It was the only way he could avoid being cut off and could be restored instead. And unbelievably, we prodigals have been given full rights as sons and daughters of God. We're robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, sinful underneath, but accepted for Jesus' sake. We're reconciled with the heavenly community and the body of Christ by whom from all rights we should be cut off. This story is unbelievable. It would never happen in the Middle East. It would never happen on earth. It's too good to be true. And yet it's our story. We prodigals. In our death wish for God, our, our broken relationship, we, we murdered his son with our sin. We try to make up for it with our actions, with our goodness. But ultimately, we have no choice but to accept being accepted by the Father. And one day, judgment day, Instead of a deserved kizaza ceremony to cut us off, we'll be ushered into the banquet of the Lamb of God. Praise God for His amazing grace. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace and that You're willing to be cut off in our place through Your Son, Jesus. Help us to respond in gratitude. Help us to respond in repentance. Help us to accept being accepted by you. Not for our own sakes. We don't deserve it. But for the sake of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.